0: Welcome back to Res Digital and a special live edition of the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, UK editor, and joining me today are the whole team
1: Mahandra, Sinclair, Aidan Taylor,
0: the
2: and Marie D'Alessandri.
0: Only person missing is uh, Rebecca Valentine, who is currently off all week playing Animal Crossing. She may be doing <laughs> that. it, it's mainly Animal Crossing. It's very
3: well. Uh, <laughs> Good, good week to take his vacation, I would say.
0: Definitely. For those not familiar, uh, GamesIndustry.biz podcast is a weekly podcast. That comes out every Monday afternoon, and we dive into kind of the biggest news and stories and insights and developments of the industry every week. We kind of take a kind of a, a, a deeper look at the biggest stories that are happening. For this week's episode, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. Uh, we're doing an Ask Me Anything style question session. Uh, we've been gathering questions for about 24 hours now, so we've got a few. We've got plenty that should be able to fill the next 45 minutes. If you're watching on YouTube, feel free to throw one into the chat. I'll be monitoring that so we can uh, we can keep an eye out for questions and hopefully we can get to as many as we can. Um, for now, let's just dive into the first one. From Michael, which games businesses are most under threat from coronavirus and should those benefiting from the pandemic do more to help them?
4: Um, anything physical. Uh, games retailers are under real threat here. Um, at the worst time, because games were just starting to come out um events businesses obviously um media nobody is advertising right now um recruitment nobody is hiring right now um outside of you know, retailers supermarkets and amazon stuff um merchandising accessories firms they were the first to get hit mainly because of china closed up um i mean these are a lot of companies inside the industries that are sort of going through transitions um and we might find that these transitions will accelerate now right i mean digital might Accelerate, physical may decline heavily you know, through this and actually after this. Um, media may have to evolve away from the advertising model a little bit. Events companies may have to look at things that are digital. And this is actually, this is the thing. It's not really about businesses, it's about people, because um, we as um, people need to learn. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, media move from magazines to websites and then to video and that kind of stuff, and you think about how uh, games distribution moved from cartridges to disks to digital. These transitions took time and we learned to adapt and evolve as people as we go along. And there's a thing that these, these transitions might really accelerate. So that anybody that's sort of in an in a industry or side of the industry that's changing quite a lot, we might find the changes are going to happen quite quickly. Um, we can't, and and we, even we, like we're doing a live stream. We've never done a live stream before. Um, we've never done a video before. Uh, and here we are having to adapt. Um, so, yeah, uh, all of those companies are going to be hit really hard by all this.
3: Well, I think the thing that just to build on what Chris was just saying, that when a lot of people think about video games or the games industry, I think they really just think about people that make games and the platforms on which they play games. Like for, for most people, games are developers and they are Xbox, PlayStation, whatever, what have you, VR stuff like that. But what this is real, the the, the sectors is really hit the hardest. I think are the, the the there are whole there are whole business areas on the periphery of all of that. So like Chris says. Peripherals, events, retail, these are the places that are really suffering at the moment. And I actually think that a lot of people, when they think about games and the games industry, they don't really think about how many different little bits and pieces there are all the way around the outside, the stuff that they just play every day. We've seen very clearly in the data uh, that's come out on sales that people aren't having problems selling games, but uh, it's, well, selling games digitally at the very least. But it's, it's the various businesses and products around the outside of that. People like us as well, Chris said, the games press. You have to really think about the way you interface with your customer, uh, the kind of value you provide provides your partners, um, the kind of ways you can monetize your business. So it, I think it, it's going to be a bit of a reset in the way that a lot of people think about how they can exist within the games industry. But the, the actual core of... A developer makes a game and sells it to a customer. That's probably the least effective part of all of this, and and there's an argument to say that it could be a boon. It could be a bit of a boost in that respect.
2: Yeah, I think I think we talk a lot about uh, physical goods, so retailers, distributors, uh, manufacturers as well. Um, but I've been thinking a lot as well about all these games that are currently being developed and that rely heavily on motion capture and voiceover and uh, all that sort of stuff that you can't really do at home because usually you don't have a soundproof room in your flat. I mean, maybe you do, but you're weird. And also all the games that rely on um, geolocation. Uh, I think we talked about this in a previous podcast about how Pokemon Go had to adapt. uh, The way it's played is to account for the fact that people can't go outside. I don't think Niantic is specifically at risk. I mean, I don't know, actually, but um, there are also smaller developers that rely on those technologies that are going to be impacted, and there are games that are going to be delayed or cancelled because of this situation, I I think.
3: Yeah. Well, going outside has become a weird, like, post-apocalyptic metagame anyway. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) What is outside?
3: Um,
4: I forgot about the second part of the question, actually. Yeah, because... Uh, so the
3: people who benefit who are yeah. benefiting from this, and I guess that probably refers to the thing I was saying, like you know, sales of Animal Crossing and so on. I, I think that's the part that I wasn't quite sure about who is benefiting from this. Well, and I mean, is I think- a reference to should there be some sort of profit when you look at the way other um, industries have been affected. So, for example, uh, live sport has been called off, and at least in the foot, the uh, English Premier League. Um, there's been a call for the biggest clubs to give profits to the smaller clubs to help them out. I don't know if that's the kind of the idea.
4: I think it's a little bit more like what Spotify and Netflix have done a little bit. Because, I mean, downloading increased by three times during the first week of the Italy lockdown. Like 160,000 games or something like that was downloaded in the first week of the Italian lockdown, which is, you know, they don't do those numbers at any other, they've never done those numbers before. And video game sales in the UK tripled last week, and that's just physical. And sure, Animal Crossing and Doom were the big reasons for that. But Call of Duty, FIFA, Mario Kart, GTA—almost every game in the chart increased by triple-digit percentages um, that week. Um, so the people are benefiting from this. They—they're not proudly boasting about it. I don't mean, think anyone would. But um, but publishers—I think publishers are probably platform holders, digital store owners, um, some developers that have games out there. Um, and I'm not, I think what would be interesting is if they started investing that money back in, we just saw the Epic announcer publishing thing. I don't know I haven't looked at the story deeply enough, but I'm, that might be part of it, you know, advance some money, remove or reduce store fees, you know, remove, reduce licensing fees. Um, developers that are doing well, you know, get those freelancers that you've got, put them on some form of retainer, you know, protect them during this whole thing, because, you know, people that you might need when this is over. Retailers, you know, if PlayStation, Xbox really feel they need Game and GameStop, when they launch new consoles, then they probably ought to do something to make sure gaming, GameStop, are not going to be completely obliterated by Amazon PSA, and PSN and Xbox Live. Um, these are all things that you could do. It's not necessarily giving away free money to companies that are struggling. It's more about like put, investing that into different ways and um, advancing stuff. You know, for be so that we because that's the thing. Brendan brought it up in a, in a chat we had um, on Slack a little while ago about Tiger requesting tax relief for video games because of what's going on, and. I am tiger always ask tax relief is what they do, but, um, but, uh, Still actually we, we're, pro- we're not an industry that really needs it because we have, all because th- if you look at the pure numbers, it's looking good. Broadly speaking, you know, we're an industry that doesn't need any help. So we probably are an industry that points to look after our own a little bit, um, and, and protect ourselves because we, we can. So the companies that are in that position, they might want to look at ways and develop initiatives to, to do that.
1: So you were talking about the, um, the pivot to digital picking up speed here and some of the other changes as, as people are just going to have to do things a lot quicker than they expected. Uh, one of the things that that I was thinking is, is the games as a service model and specifically, you know, things like Ultimate Team or, or League of Legends, things that really kind of are driven by engagement. Um, for the last couple of years, I've been kind of like hoping and telling people that, like, we should really kind of move away from those because a lot of them are, are built on kind of exploitive mechanics and, and gross monetization, and it's it's just not really the best thing to base your business on. But in the current environment, I would fully expect anyone that has a game like that that is, um, you know, established at all to lean heavily into that, probably at the expense of, of other things. So. Um, it's not it's not anyone's first concern right now, but uh, I, I would not be surprised if companies get more aggressive about the the sort of monetization practices that were under a lot of legislative scrutiny running up to this. And, uh, you know, when, when the pandemic is is somewhat behind us, I, I think we might have uh, built an even greater reliance on those than than we have to this point, which is mm-hmm. good. We have I mean,
4: seen a little bit of some companies just giving it away for free, actually. It's almost seen the reverse, you know, because I guess it's because they're getting this engagement and they don't want to be seen to be monetizing a, a tragedy, which is what this is. Um, they're sort of, you're not all, I, I, I can't. Speak for every company, but I've seen like um, uh, game developers doing like free weekends and giving away coins and all that kind of stuff, so people can just play and not have to worry about spending money. And you know, all the games companies that are giving away free codes at the moment to try and you know give people stuff to do. I mean, it's all a bit of a PR thing. Um, yeah, I don't.
3: That's a fine line, though, right? I mean, I, I won't name the developer, but because I took them up on their offer and I was very happy about it, but they gave their game away for free for a week. But obviously. Presumably, they kind of want you to buy it after a week. This thing yeah. is over in a week, is it? Um, I, I yeah, feel that's, like,
2: that's yeah. yeah. This
3: whole situation is, like, really, there's a lot of easy PR wins, and we've had most of them in our inboxes in the last sort of two weeks. And then, while you can say there's, like, there's this upside, there is definitely the sense that, <clears throat> and, you know, I don't know if this is even a problem, but, like, people are indoors a lot more. There's this idea everyone's got so much time on their hands, and video games is, like, the fill-up-your-time business. I mean, I think we've, we've all chatted, you know, that this is an opportunity for us to kind of... I mean, because as journalists, we don't play games for anything. We don't review games, preview games. We all play games in our own time. And, like, we probably don't... Well, we don't play very many games or games that often, and we're massively behind on the new releases because they are enormously time-consuming. And so this is this is a moment in which the video games industry can provide value to people. Um, but, like, it is, as Brendan says, I think there's... There's question over exactly the ways in which it will do that. I mean, I, I think the performance of Animal Crossing sort of sh- sh- shocked everybody and just how popular it proved to be. And for me, that's great, you know, because certainly my partner is playing at the moment. And I think half the team is playing it at the moment, and and it's just a really great escape from what's going on outside your door uh, right now. Uh, whether or not you see these, play our game free for a week, then have it taken away from you, but you don't have, you know, I, that sort of thing is 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 another thing altogether. For me. I Actually, think
0: one of the tweets, Dave, from um, the World Health Organization is saying, like, here's loads of different things you can do to keep healthy, and one of them was playing active video games. And obviously, like, the kind of little infographic of a person with a Wii remote, but, you know, adventure, adventure the dance match, if you've still got those, like, you know, people are, there, there are video games that, I that can help people who are isolated like this.
3: Yeah, Well, I think we're kind of drifting from the question itself, really, which was sort of what parts of the industry are going to be hardest hit. Um, I think the number one is physical retail in terms of like the size of its presence within the industry and the degree to which the industry is able to function without it. Uh, In a recent podcast, we did talk about this subject um, in some depth, but there was this idea that I put forward then and it's something that's come up time and time again throughout my career, which is about 14 years at this point, that there was always this idea that you know, when you transition to a new console generation, you need physical retail, you need the shelves, you need those stores. And that's always been true, but this is a generation where there is a realistic chance that it will be forced to happen without physical retail in it. And in doing so, it kind of pushes, the industry progresses quite slowly in terms of consumer behavior, like the move online and comfort with digital downloads. This could be a real push that really forces People that really are dedicated to gaming and want their games and want the new machines to, to buy them in new ways, because either it's that or it's nothing at all. Right. So and that is a real threat to retail. Um, more so even than just three months of not opening up. It's it's three, four months of consumers that do have loyalty to physical retail being forced to buy their games in new ways. And maybe seeing, you know what, this is better or I prefer this now or whatever. Which-
0: We've spent the first third of this session talking about this question. Which, to be fair, it's a big question. It's a big, uh, big group. But We are actually starting to get a couple of questions in the chat. So um, thank you very much for those. Uh, I'm going to put you guys on the spot then with the first one. Mike, Mike Garcia, what do you guys think of the push to unionise the game development industry?
2: It should happen. Yeah, <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs>
1: be a Next questions.
2: Yep, that's done. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think it's been long in coming here because, for for decades now, uh, publishers have have really benefited way too much from just being in the business of making games. And everyone that played games when they when they grew up wants to make them for a living, and that means they are willing to take some some compromises on it instead of being paid what they can get paid working for a you know pr- as a programmer for a generic tech company because it's like wow you're making games for the big triple a publishers you can you can short them on the uh, on the pay a little bit you can you can work them harder you can sell them on just working conditions that are not really acceptable because you're doing it for the passion you know you're doing it for the love of the game you're- your favorite <laughs> word brendan <laughs> yeah absolutely it- it's and it's just set up in like it hasn't even had to have been a like uh, a nefarious malicious concerted effort from the publishers to do this because there's a just a constant supply of uh kids out of out of college or self-taught that are just like willing to throw themselves into the meat grinder to get these games done and it's we've gone too long without without developers having a proper advocate looking out for their interests there's the IGDA there are some other other game organizations which serve a purpose uh, I think it's primarily as a networking and educational purpose but when it comes to sort of balancing the scales between them and the publishers and their their employers to, for making sure that they get treated fairly um, I think there's just been a vacuum in games for for too long and there's some some movement to change that now. I'm not sure how long it will take, or whether it will ultimately be successful. But uh, I'm encouraged that it's at least something that seems to be a priority for for a larger number of people than it was a decade ago.
4: So I'm, I'm, you know, obviously, I think broadly, it's important. Um, the um, the only thing I've got is that I'm not entirely sure how, how how much really there is an appetite amongst the entire development community for it. And I only say this because I was at, I was at, I went out, this is a year ago and this is entirely anecdotal, but I went out of about 20, 20, just over 20 programmers who worked for a big games company. Um, and I was just hanging out with them. I was just there and I was talking to them. I asked them if anyone's approached unionized unions and that kind of stuff with them. A bunch of them had been directly approached about it. And when I asked, so oh, was, you know, were you going to go down that route? I was trying to, you know, think to you know, test the temperature of that. And their response was, that's the point. And, I mean, maybe the company they work for is too good. Um, maybe, I mean, yeah, they, they didn't take part in the best place of the work awards. so I don't know, but, um, they, but I, I, um, I think that's the problem because I'm actually been, I've been doing this for a long time. I've unionization of the games industry has been a topic for, I don't want to say maybe not a decade, but it's been a long time. And, um, and that we always do these stories and, you know, I think it's becoming more of a thing in America, particularly with recent Kotaku articles, but, um, uh, I, I still don't see there's there's gradual progress um I just it feels like it's not it feels like we're still a bit away from it but I okay. guess it I
3: but, but I mean unionization is still generally speaking opt in anyway. I find the question yeah, was, I mean. like strange because you know of course you know this should be an option um as you say Chris not every not every company's employees are even going to see the need to do it but but the idea that it shouldn't happen I think is a much more um, Dramatic position than just saying it should, because when you're saying it should, it just means that there are companies out there that would benefit from it. There are parts of the games industry that would benefit from it. And we have just seen with um, what happened with GameStop, you know, the employees sort of working through this pandemic. A situation like this really, really casts a light on how much things like unionisation could be useful and could be needed, could be necessary. Because you see a lot, I see a lot of small businesses in my area. They were their number one concern was supporting their staff. And their idea was, you know, we've got profit in the bank and that profit was earned on the backs of our staff. So now it should go towards making sure our staff were all right in the time of uncertainty. We don't really see that from publicly traded for <laughs> companies who during times of uncertainty just let staff go. Um, and that's the kind of thing that unionization is a, it's a balance for that. It can help mitigate that somewhat. And just not wanting that to even be an option. I mean, I'm, we all here we're not the owners of companies we're not ceos we're the rank and file we're exactly those kinds of people um i feel like to to, to do that counter argument we'd need the ceo of something to to come on here and argue why no one should be part of a union but i really can't see the argument for anything other than yes okay that
0: one was nice and simple brilliant um Brandon asks, even if the pandemic is brought under control quickly, it will take the economy time to rebound. Might Sony and Microsoft want to delay the launch of their expensive new consoles until more people have the money to spend on them? I would not be shocked if one or both of them are pushed into 2021
1: at this point. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because like th- this morning, the, um, the US just released their employment figures and they had like 3.3 million uh, first time claimants last week. And that is a massive amount, so much larger than they've ever had, like, as a, as a one-week uh, snapshot before. It still only puts, like, their unemployment rate up to, like, 5% from, from 3.5%, I think, which is, like, really, really low. And I, I go back and forth on this because I, I think, like, this is obviously not the end of the hit the economy is going to take. Um, But looking back at some of the previous uh, times when unemployment in the U S as a, as a benchmark was, was really bad. um, Like in 2009, it was like 10% late 2009. And that was, that was sort of the, you know, the environment that Microsoft was getting ready to launch connect into and connect did really well Um, I I think to some extent there's there's a bit of resilience with entertainment products in in down economies Um, well with with the game industry entertainment products anyways but like on the other hand I don't I don't know how bad the economy is going to get and these are really expensive boxes. And the new approach to them makes me wonder about um, what's what's going to convince people to spend five or six hundred dollars on a new box.
0: Um,
4: I I don't think I mean I don't think the answer to a, a struggling economy is not to release stuff um, and um, the, these games consoles sell out. At launch like super quickly and you they can't put enough in the market they could have doubled the launch of ps1 xbox one in terms of quantity into the market and they still would have sold out um uh but i mean (laughs) i think that we
1: sold out at launch chris
4: Hmm? i mean
1: if you sell out at launch and it doesn't get good momentum or there's bad word of mouth or
4: yeah
1: it's not a not a really great Having I mean, reason people to pick it up then like that selling out at launch doesn't really you know cement anything
4: i'd be really worried about the games industry if consoles don't come out in the next year i mean right now the, i mean right now things are booming because of this but the games industry had its worst year probably on record i mean sales of games consoles have just plummeted nobody's buying them um and it's
3: yeah, even the switch it's, it's the apart switch.
4: from the switch i mean nintendo being the glorious exception at the moment who are selling out you know you, you know you yeah. all the the way um i think if you're if you're playstation or xbox and you don't have anything to give in the next maybe not at christmas but certainly in the in the next year or so then there's there's trouble ahead you're losing that audience that audience is drifting away and going somewhere else and um i think there's a there's a there's a game to play um
0: if either of the consoles get de- either or both of the consoles get um delayed, I'm, I'm sure they'll be with us before end of March. If only because it's the end of but the. But the economy won't have recovered by then. I mean, this is. Um,
2: That's the thing. I I don't think we exactly know how much time the economy will need to actually recover. And like, if if then if they do get delayed, is March going to be enough time for the economy to recover? I kind of doubt it. No. Um. So I don't I don't know if if they should delay the console. What I know is a lot of people will have picked up gaming as a hobby during this pandemic, right? Because there's nothing else to do but from playing video games. So if it is launched, if they are launched, sorry, this year, maybe there's a lot more people who are not playing games who might buy the consoles if they have the money. That's the big if if they do have the money by then, but I don't know.
3: Well if they're not going to launch the consoles this year through through choice, I, I don't see it being through choice. I think if they can, if they can launch them, they will launch them. But if they don't launch the consoles this year, they should cut the price, like by necessity, they should cut the price of the PS4 mm. and the Xbox down to like fifty quid a piece, and just get them out there. You know, like just do it. I mean, I just I don't do know, it. If people are going to pick up this uh, pick up gaming as a hobby, and nobody can buy a Switch. Then the only thing standing in the way, surely, is the price point of the systems they can they can access. But I, I don't. It, it will never be by choice. I don't think. I think if if the consoles get delayed, it will be because they really don't have any. Any way of, of influencing what's going on? I don't see consoles getting delayed because of the concern that it will take six to eight months before more people have more money to spend on on hardware.
0: Okay. Next question. Uh, let's go. We'll do one more pandemic question because we're because <laughs> it's a clearly a running topic uh, for obvious reasons. This is from Kin. Uh, how do you see the games industry changing after this pandemic is over? Do you foresee any changes to how developers manage the projects going forward? Um, I wonder if that's partly an allusion to the fact that obviously a lot of people are remote working. Um, I've been talking to a lot of studios about the process of remote work I'm actually in the process of um writing a feature on or preparing a feature on the companies back in China that have gone back to work um after remote working and a lot of them are saying like you know can like, they're glad to be back in the office and there haven't been as many kind of well now that we've shown we can remote work we'll do more of it or we'll be more flexible to it because as much as remote working is an option it's 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 accessible there have been like kind of notable not significant but notable kind of dips in productivity um it's just it's just not possible to develop games as quickly when you are so scattered do, yeah particularly if you're a larger organization indie teams indie teams are often remote anyway but larger studios yeah they they're, they're going to go get back into the processes um so but i don't know about you guys what do you think this is going to change the way the industry works yeah <laughs> I, mean, I hope so first thank you very much
4: <laughs> i think that it's i was talking about transitions earlier about how it might accelerate transitions one of the transitions the entire of the employment world is going through is working from home increasingly more and more people are working from home but it's it's a slow thing because the industry businesses need to learn to adapt to that they need to look at how to use tools and that's why they start off with people working a couple of days a week or just those sort of people can work from home and those people have to work in the office and that kind of stuff and they've slowly gradually been transitioning to this over years and years and years and it was going to take years and years and years more and suddenly boom overnight we're all doing it and to go suddenly okay now you now when people start going actually can i work from home two days a week three days a week and you go, actually, you know what, it doesn't, it didn't impact our productivity, it didn't impact the workflow at all. I think companies would be sort of, you know, you know they, they, this is something they know they can do now and they'll feel confident in doing it. And as before, they were probably trying stuff. Now they've been forced into it. And I think we'll, we'll discover, we know, don't we? We're, we're all a remote team and it goes pretty well. So, um, I mean, there are challenges, but um, those are the things that you sort of work through using technology. So I, I, I think it will. I think it will change particularly that side of things in terms of where people are working and, and, and um, how it's done. I mean, you look at, look at the new Ori game, you know, look how great that is and how beautiful that looks. 80 people, nobody working in an office. It's, it's doable. And it's, and people are going to discover that I
3: think. Yeah. I think that the hope would be that even the larger companies would as Chris says, like relax a little bit about having everybody in the office five days a week. I mean it was fairly old fashioned way of thinking anyway. I know what you're saying about dips in productivity, but of course, this isn't like a managed transition into allowing people to work from home. It's like, okay, tomorrow everybody has to work from home. Any dip in productivity there is to be expected, and it's got nothing to do with how well it can work. Um, I think this experience will I I think there must be plenty of people who now have to work from home, surrounded by their kids and so on, that maybe don't like the experience, maybe they do like working in offices, but I think a lot more people are going to have their heads turned by it. I think on the other end of things, in independent development, I mean, it's already been like that for a while, and I think more and more people are having their heads turned by it. I would direct everybody to the last episode of the AIAS Game Makers Notebook podcast, which was... Robin Hamaki, the founder of Phenomena, talking to Emily Greer, who founded Congregate and is now running a studio called Double Loop. And this was before the virus hit. This was at Dice, Europe, uh, Dice US this year. And they were talking about how like, Emily Greer started up this new studio and she wanted a good quality of life. And literally, you just have to allow people to work from home if that's what you want. Starting from a blank sheet of paper now, you would never, ever conceive of forcing everybody to work in an office if you really wanted what's best for your employees. Um, the commute, managing children, the mental strain. Like, these are all big factors. And generally speaking, the whole office culture idea has really disregarded what employees actually needed to feel happy. I mean, some people would like it, but not everybody. And that's, that, I think, is something that's been... That idea has been creeping into the industry and has been... Um, pushed forward by just the rise of independent development. But I think hopefully this will show the bigger companies that there is another way and that maybe more employees can work two, three days a year. I mean, I, you know, I, I, like we're, a, we're a remote team, right? But we try and meet up as often as we can. Um, my, my partner lives in Scotland. If I was forced to work in Brighton, what would that do to our relationship? You know, These are the kinds of things that companies just haven't seen as their business for the longest time. Um, and obviously, we're not going to have an epidemic to deal with day in, day out, forever. But I think this experience will make people more alive to the alternative routes and to, to ways things can, can work more generally favourable to everybody.
4: And they'll, they'll benefit quite a bit from it. You know, suddenly, they don't, people they can attract talent. And they're going, oh, you can actually stay working from where you are. You don't have to relocate your family and move to a different country or just into a different location. You can stay where you are suddenly that recruitment problem which is a big issue in the game development particularly in the UK where there's there's too many jobs and not enough people um not enough experienced people who want to do it um it's a it's an option for them now um whole, I think they'll discover it's an option for them
5: it's also like one of the sort of key benefits you get from facilitating working from home is like it was you sort of mentioned but you know if, if you look at a studio like rare which is based out kind of in the middle of nowhere like it's kind of hard to, I would imagine, like get get the employees and attract the right level of talent because, you know, the commute out to that place, although I'm sure rare offer like, you know, shuttles and stuff like that, it's do people want to move up to like the West Midlands to go work in their studio when they could be living like anywhere else in the world, basically? Or, you know, places like London or Brighton where, you know, Gamer Network is based, you know, quite expensive places to live. And it becomes hugely restrictive if all of a sudden know somebody has to relocate to this big expensive city or something like that and really you just you kind of cut yourself off from accessing like the people who could actually make your company much much better than just people who are willing to relocate
3: yeah exactly and and like when you think about the kind of places that that are development hubs particularly in the US I mean this this conversation with Emily Greer I'm referring to they Emily Greer lives in San Francisco you know and Mm you can't reasonably ask another human being to live in San Francisco. <laughs> no. It's not fair. You know, you've, got, you've got to accept that. But she also said, just like we just hire the best people wherever they are. And actually what it really does is it puts the onus on the management of that company to come up with ways to effectively work with everybody rather than putting the onus on the employee to up
1: sticks and move to wherever it is convenient for management. Um, I, I just want to say I lived in San Francisco for seven years. It's, it's a lovely place. Matt was only talking about it's too expensive. Right, Matt?
2: <laughs> oh, I do love San
1: Francisco too.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, it's too expensive. But, but also, but, you know, and you get paid well, but you have to spend 60% of your salary on, on rent. And Why would you ask anyone to do that? <laughs> well, fundamentally, your job is just looking at a computer screen for eight hours a day you can just do that and
1: be on slack and stuff like it and the worst part is like <laughs> you're spending that much and you're getting like college dorm level housing
3: yeah <laughs> yeah like sharing you're on like a hundred grand a year but you're sharing the two sharing a room with two people um, i think we, the challenge is like how does how does an ea do that how does how does a 10 cent do that you know like the company how does ubisoft which has 2000 people working on the single game spread across three different continents how do they do that um, i think that's probably the part of the industry that's never really going to be able to transition before we
0: further offend the city of San Francisco, um, Mike Garcia is back with another question. It kind of ties in with um, a question that we've also got uh, So from Laura Smith. So Mike asked, um, has the VR question come up? What happened to it and, is, and where is it going? Uh, Laura Smith asked, how important is Half-Life Alex for VR?
5: I mean, my opinions on VR are well documented on the podcast. So <laughs>
2: good for it, Hayden. I want to hear it.
5: No, you. I mean, you. You were you were singing Half Life Alex's praises earlier. Earlier,
2: weren't you? I mean, Marie? I wasn't really doing that. I was just saying from what I've witnessed uh, of the past couple of days, it does look and play quite incredible. I'm not. It's it's just a fact, you know. <laughs>
4: Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it, it does. I, heard, I think it, I've heard Jamie Sefton, who is also by the looks of it watching. He's got the game. He was, he was very excited about it. Um, and I'm sure it plays really, really well. Just nobody can play it because nobody <laughs> yeah. has VR mm-hmm. and nobody There's wants that. VR. It's <clears too throat> expensive. No, so
2: that's, that's not. Yeah, that's, okay, fine.
3: that's the, the response to the VR question, isn't it? How many people played the first Half-Life game in 13 years? Mm. 45,000 people in the state. I mean, for me, like, this is one question which I have real trouble engaging with in an objective way because I do feel a little bit let down by it all. I was, um, you know, I I, I do really love Valve's games in general. Probably five of my top 20 ever were made by Valve. Uh, All of those games were made before sort of 2010. So I guess it shows you that Valve sort of pivoted away from that. And I just feel like, I get that Valve is you know, invested in the VR market, but for me, it just feels wrong that Half-Life is used as a tool to kickstart the VR market rather than to be made for the people that Valve built its business on in the first place. Um, without the success of Half-Life, Valve may not exist. Without the success of Half-Life 2, Steam wouldn't have got leverage in the market um, and now the new Half-Life game that everyone's been asking for literally every day for the last thirteen years, only available to like a percent of a percent of a percent of the people that actually want it. I, I find that really really hard to. It does.
5: It does feel like some sort
3: of it being amazing to play and not helping
5: it does feel like some sort of like monkey poor outcome doesn't it yeah, everyone's it like yes yeah. finally half-life is yeah. here and you can only play it on yeah, exactly. an incredibly expensive piece of hardware that's linked up to an incredibly expensive other piece of <laughs> hardware
0: or or you can just go on youtube and watch the 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 ending i won't say who's in it. i mean, no, screw it the g-man bit which is honestly what any of us are really interested in which i've done so i mean down. is is that what people oh, yeah. are in for half-life i thought it was
5: no, maybe it for isn't. a little bit more than that <laughs> I thought oh. it was the kind of like 10 to 15 hours of game between the beginning no, and the just end. The just mm-hmm. need the gym. Right. Okay. I'm all, all i you been playing think... Half-Life wrong for years then.
4: <laughs> all I'm thinking is all of the, uh, all of the event organizers who are hoping to get through all this, um, now planning dedicated entire areas to <laughs> just playing through the game because they know that people want it. People want it. You yeah. can't justify a thousand quid. I, yeah,
2: no,
3: it. I, I want it. But, and I'm a game journalist. I don't, like like Hayden said, so it's 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 available in Oculus Quest, but you can't play it standalone in Oculus Quest. You still need to link it to a PC. So the only defense I've seen of it that made any sense is, but, you know, Oculus Quest is a standalone system. It costs £400 or whatever. The problem is you can't play it standalone on Oculus Quest. It still needs a PC. It is, like, minimum £1,000 buy, which is insane for a game that...
2: But no one is, no like, no is going to oh, buy... <laughs> no one is just buying... I mean, I don't know, I may be wrong. Some people may buy everything in one go, but most people, including myself, have like bits of it that were already here. And then mm. I have had a headset for the past couple of weeks now. So that's the that's yeah. was bought for Half-Life Alex in the first place. But, but if- the PC we had already, and but had it for years. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying right now.
3: Short sure, sure game Newell's thank you card is in the po- in the post. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's true. It it's true. true so they much want. money on its hardware, but I can't. I just can't. I can't justify it, and it feels wrong.
2: No, I understand though. Yeah, that's fair Jamie, enough.
4: Jamie, who is on the stream, he he did buy a PC and an an index to play it. Well, that's uh, mad. I'm earning. Yeah, I know. I'm paying. I'm paying him too much money.
3: <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I'm desperate to play it. Yeah. It, it sounds amazing. I have total confidence. But weirdly, like the thing I was reminded of, I actually talked to a couple of people at Valve who worked on the game, Sean Bannerman and Corey Peters. And they're like really engaged and really interesting on all the various challenges of making it. You can see it's like been a, a great thing for some designers to wrap their head around. What is Half-Life? How do you boil it down to essential parts? How do you move over to VR? What does VR allow you to do? Like re and remaking the game on the fly to take the best possible advantage, but it just, you know, and that's great for them, but that's just them, isn't it? Like, and, and I feel like when like, companies like Microsoft have this sort of like internalized thinking, like the Xbox is going to be a platform for TV watching, everybody rips into them for it. But like Valve have been given a bit of a free pass on this one, I think. I think there obviously is a lot of upset in the community, but Valve have a tremendous amount of respect. And this, this feels like a pretty egregiously wrong thing to do. But, you know, again, it's, a, it's not
1: all that different from Half-Life 2, Matt, like yeah, you mentioned. Yeah, like they used that to push Steam. And I remember the, the uproar at the time about people, I have to install this Steam DRM thing. I don't even want this is the worst thing ever. And, uh, yeah, they, they came around on that.
3: Didn't cost yeah, a grand though, did
1: it, bro? Really? Yeah, that's
3: <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, if it was about installing a client on my PC, I would have done it by now. Trust, you yeah. know. We've
0: got about five minutes left, so I'm gonna run us on to our last question. Uh let's go four question from mark davies uh the legend of zelda Breath of the wild launched nintendo switch we know that halo is going to be a big title for xbox at the launch of a series x but how important do you expect killer launch games to be for the next batch of consoles
4: um quick i'll just say nintendo does need a killer app at the launch because people buy nintendo consoles for nintendo games they're like a weird thing they needed zelda they needed wii sports that they they do need that that's if you don't have a big nintendo game at the launch of a nintendo console what's the point of having it um, I, Xbox and PlayStation, I mean, PlayStation 4 dominated this generation. It's launch lineup was rubbish. Um, and they, 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 they I mean, it, it's cause they talk of, they're a little bit more third party based, right? You've got, you know, Call of Duty will be there and, and Cyberpunk will be there, whatever. Um, it is good to have something special. I'm sure Halo is going to be a big deal to Microsoft. Like maybe Forza would be as well, but I, um, no, I don't think it's important for PS5 and Series X. I do think oh, it's important then. for Nintendo.
5: I mean, like, what was the launch lineup for like the 360 and the PS3? I don't think it was anything especially notable. Actually, pretty... Oh, was it? Well, I...
4: yeah, actually, you'll find Perfect Dark Zero. Okay, like, right. Cameo elements of are... pattern. Perfect Dark right. Zero is awful.
1: Project Gotham 3. Geometry Wars Retro Evolved. Right. I bought a 360 at launch. I played nothing but Geometry Wars for five months. Because <laughs> 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 uh, it was <laughs> the
5: only game available. <laughs> No, but
3: that, but that no, but that's <laughs> that's a great game. Yeah, I think also what, uh, for PS3, Genji Days of the Blade, I think Genji Two Days of the Blade. Massive damage. Sorry.
1: Massive damage hit the uh, the weak spot. Yeah, Real that, time. Like giant
3: enemy crab, right? Yeah. Well, we all know. We all, all, all know. NBA, it turns out, but yeah, I remember all this stuff like it was yesterday. I think there was also like a dragon riding game called Lair. Which right, was I was trying so to ask the,
0: the dragon riding game because that was my factor five. The guys who did Rogue Leader and uh, Rogue Squadron, the I, aka young. the best Star Wars games, and it was this weird dragon flying thing yeah. re- with motion controls that didn't yeah. work. Was i was the, trying to remember the name of it. It
3: was yeah. the control,
4: yes, yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, don't, yeah.
3: don't forget yeah, those lineups were terrible, actually
4: playstation 2 would never have been a success if it wasn't for time splitters right i mean that's that's well documented we all know that right i mean
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty weak lineup too i think like i, yeah. I like to yeah. second tag tournament yeah. and yeah, that's... i think that the Racer. but i think the, game Fanta- was the 360
3: at least was gears of war wasn't it like that that to my memory was was, the was that a
5: launch that title was... though
3: oh. it wasn't launched no no see th- this is what i mean yeah. Yeah. like
5: yeah. I mean, like P- PS4, like you say, not a great launch lineup, like the Order 1866 yeah, or 1886 yeah. or whatever, which was fine, apparently. But these, it's not like a Legend of Zelda or like a Bloodborne oh. or something. It's not like a real console spinner. And I don't. The Order
4: that... was later. It was, um, was Knack and Killzone. Um, oh right well or, yeah
5: neck, yeah um, yeah <laughs> yeah like they're, they're never exactly like ground shattering exclusives are they that send people out to do it so i don't it's
1: all caliber on dreamcast
5: sorry it's all caliber on dreamcast
1: okay. Best <laughs> <long time
5: ever. laughs> you are just a dreamcast apologist though brendan so what was the question
3: again did we get in, have we come even closer i don't think to we that? got even
0: closer the question was how important Killer <laughs> Lords. I batch of I, know, I think we've well, answered it
3: there. quite fully <laughs> you, can, you can look at say like so for example i think that a lot of people ended up buying a ps4 so they could buy grand theft Auto say, 5 on a new machine right? mm. I, I think that the the prominence of third party particularly on those two platforms is it just makes it a completely different proposition to a nintendo system Um, A lot of people want to play Destiny and Call of Duty and all the biggest games generally are not the ones. Even the stuff that Sony makes itself and it makes some great games, really big games. But Spider-Man isn't one of the biggest games in the world. It's a great exclusive for it to have. It's not Chris. I know you. It It sold
4: really well. I mean, I think it's PlayStation's biggest hit. But yeah, I I get what you're saying. I agree with you.
3: But the very, very biggest games are sort of transcend both those platforms. So I think Hayden's right. I don't really know how much a launch lineup actually does it for you, or at least it's increasingly done it less.
5: um, The the only reason I got a PlayStation 4 was for Bloodborne, which came out like six months after the console's release, anyway. So that wasn't even part of the launch lineup. It was some sort of distant prospect in the future that I knew I would eventually want but the actual launch lineup I was just like I don't know or care about any of these games I just need more like from software goodness
4: Killer games are good for momentum. They're good for dropping in for when momentum might slow down. Or you need another <coughs> big talking point. Like Nintendo, actually, it's the one thing Nintendo does you compare it to is they did Breath of the Wild at the beginning and they did Mario Kart and they just kept people talking about it. And PlayStation won't need anything at launch because all the third parties will do it. In fact, PlayStation and Xbox, if anything, should stay back and let the third parties do it because you know they don't want to harm their sales. And then you know when there's a bit of a dip in the release schedule, drop a Halo, drop a Spider-Man, drop yeah. a Bloodborne, and then that causes a big uplift, and then you keep the momentum going. So well, no, can, I, don't I don't think it's important.
3: You can drop a Rise: Son of Rome in there. You know, <laughs> there. Sunset
4: Overdrive, that's we <laughs> want.
3: <laughs> really start up. Um, but actually, I, I think uh, as a as an as an addition to that, I think the PS4's launch lineup was so. And again. Launch lineup isn't available launch day. I think they like to think of it as like a launch window. run to like eight months after the console's actually out. Um, but I think that the, the PS4 was so lacking this generation. I think that's how No Man's Sky ended up being pushed to the fore so much. Like Sony genuinely needed games to rally behind and it had this indie game which kind of looked amazing. And, and you put... You had Sean Murray being put on stage at E3 and Wyatt doing a cover of it. And if you, if you read any interview with Sean Murray now, he'll, he'll tell you that it was just momentum and they just got carried away. And they were given all of these opportunities that you weren't really supposed to get. And looking back now, it really strikes me that Sony just knew it didn't really have an awful lot to put out there. So it selected this game. And then when that all blew up, it kind of was curiously absent to help pick up the pieces.
0: We have probably run out of time now, so I think we have to wrap this up. Um, I'm gonna start the wrap up with an apology that there have been some problems. YouTube seems to have been having some issues with our feed. Everything has been working absolutely fine on the back end, but there've been disruptions to the feed for which we apologize. There's, I'm not sure how much we could have done for that. Um, But thank you to all those who sent any questions. Thank you to my team for joining me, of course. if you've enjoyed this, if you enjoyed this sort of discussion, uh, please consider subscribing to the Bid podcast. Uh, it's available on all good podcasting platforms, Spotify, iTunes, etc. I won't name them all because Brendan always mocks me and pretends that I've made some up. Um, we release an episode every Monday afternoon. Um, as I said earlier, kind of diving into the biggest news and developments um, from the business behind video games. Res Digital is going to take a very short break, I think about 10 minutes. Um, we're going to be back at 4pm with the Eurogamer team. They're doing a live stream of the Resident Evil 2 remake, I'm going to be back at 11 a.m. tomorrow. You're done. That's it. No more me. No more serial killer in a shed as someone rather (laughs) likely. I'm going to be back at 11 a.m. We're doing an exclusive interview with them. There's a brand new game studio uh, being announced tomorrow morning. You'll be able to read the details on Game Studio or watch the stream where we'll be talking to the talent, the surprise talent behind it. I hope you'll join me for that. In the meantime, thank you. Uh, Goodbye. And thank you to my team. (laughs)
1: Bye.